Yes, eyewitness testimony is totally unreliable in many cases, but that's not what man was. He was never an eyewitness. He was a nose. They have to have a unanimous verdict. They don't all, all have to be unanimous in their degree of belief. Hosted by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane, this is The Shattered Window. In October 1989, David and Cynthia's lawyers told the judge that a man had tried to kidnap a young girl from an apartment half a mile from the DeWallabies' home the night before Jacqueline was taken. The man was identified by the homeowner, Elizabeth Siki, as being Perry Hernandez, the same man who a year later was accused of being involved in two similar incidents, including the abduction and sexual assault of the six-year-old girl in Blue Island, and a botched abduction attempt, that same night where he had failed to break in. While this certainly seemed like more than a coincidence, in November, Judge Richard Neville said that he did not regard this piece of evidence that could potentially link the crimes as clear and convincing, and told the defence attorneys for Cynthia and David that it could not be entered at trial. The jury selection began on the 5th of April 1990 and was held in the Criminal Courts Building on South California Avenue. The jury selection was attended by both Cynthia and David, who sat together. Cynthia was often spotted sobbing and crying as her husband comforted her by wrapping his arm around her shoulder and stroking her hand. The past year and a half had been undoubtedly tough on the couple, who were now ready to fight for their lives and fight to clear their names. Judge Richard Neville would be presiding over the case. Judge Neville had a good reputation in the Cook County Circuit Court and was known for his honesty, intelligence and penchant for being blunt. The son of a Chicago police lieutenant, he graduated from DePaul College of Law in 1965. Earlier in the week, Judge Neville had ruled on several pretrial motions. He had ruled that proposed defense witness Linda Patrine would not be allowed to testify in regards to psychic impressions. However, she was allowed to testify in regards to other aspects. We spoke to Linda Patrine about this. Linda also told us about the atmosphere outside the courtroom each afternoon. My life became, in a way, a nightmare from that case. When I left the courtroom, um, we we saw all the court emptying out because it was filled with nothing but reporters, whether it was radio, television, newspaper, magazines. It was like only because the stupid cat, whatever his name was, and, and he's he's such a, uh, he was such a jerk, and everything was being so tabloidy at that point. Anything that happened on the case was so huge that it made the news. It was headline. It was on, in every newspaper we had. It was on every radio channel. It was every, it was, the fact that there was going to be a psychic brought in to even be possibly going into the case, which is unheard of, because we're not a proven science. Somehow, 
the stuff was being leaked out and I really didn't want to go. And I wound up talking to the attorney who was very upset and nervous because I went down and I said, I really don't want to do this because the press is going to be all over it and I know it's going to cause chaos in my life because I like my privacy. And it was more of and because of my children. And they turned around and they said, well, there's nothing that can be done because if I didn't willingly choose to go in and, and meet with the judge first, which was not the day of court, it was prior to that, um, it would be a decision on the judge if he felt that I could take a stand in the actual court case. And the prosecuting attorney thought it was a joke and wanted me not to have any part of it. And I was told that if I refused to go, I mean, I would be subpoenaed in. And if I didn't choose to go in, then in our country, it's a law, you can wind up going to jail. So um, what I agreed to do was that if they could keep my name out of the press, I would greatly appreciate it. See, my, my boyfriend had gone with me to drive me he called home to find out that all the cameras were here already in the trucks all along our block. The kids were in the house, so they're freaking out. And, and he told them not to answer the door, not to be scared, that we would handle it. So he came and he said, we have to make a decision. I said, what? He said, well, if you go home, they're going to hound you. There's reporters everywhere by your house. They've got the big trucks. They've got all the equipment out there. So, um, and uh, we got to the elevator and they were all running with their, their, their microphones. And so I stopped as we pressed the button. I said, look, I will be glad to do an interview downstairs for a few minutes. You can ask me a few questions and I want this to be the end of it. So if you call the trucks and get them away from my kids are afraid, there's a lot going on. You got the neighborhood up for grabs. So can you get all those trucks out of there? And will this be enough if I give you what you want now? And that's why I made the decision to do the interview. At that point, when I went down, there was every station you can imagine and beyond. I, I, I couldn't imagine. They were two and three people deep around me in a circle. That's how many press were there. And I knew two, five, seven, nine, thirty-two. What made it worse was by asking the um, the judge not to release my name to the press brought me more up as a mystery. I thought it would help get me through where the attention wouldn't be on me at all. And I would give my testimony and take the, the questions and answer back. And that would be the end of it. Because I really didn't want my fame being made through a, a seven-year-old's death. I, I felt like it, it was just, this was like a three-ring circus already set in motion unfortunately, for the family. And I didn't want to add to the insanity of it. And uh, all I was trying to do was help. There were still a number of other pretrial motions Judge Neville had not yet ruled on, and it was speculated that those would come over the next few days. He had still not ruled on whether the defense would be allowed to present videotapes as evidence or call on a California psychologist to testify. He had also not decided whether the jury would be able to visit the Dwallaby home as well as the crime scene where Jacqueline's body was discovered. 
Judge Neville had ruled that Davy had to be subpoenaed to determine whether he was competent to testify during trial. If he were found competent, he was going to be called as a prosecution witness in the murder trial of his parents. Assistant Public Guardian Jeanette Volpe had argued with Judge Neville that testifying could potentially be unduly traumatic for Davy and said that because of his young age, he could not fully understand the consequences of testifying against his parents. During jury selection, prospective jurors were asked if they had heard of the case. Virtually all of them said that they had. The case had dominated local media, with the investigators making statements like, We're not ruling out that a relative or friend could be involved. When asked if they had formed an opinion on the case based on what they had seen or read in the media, those who said yes were questioned further by Judge Neville, and a number were excused. On the third day of jury selection, lawyers were given an opportunity to question the potential jurors that still remained. As is routine during jury selection, each side attempted to take an advantage by eliminating jurors that seemed likely to favour the opposing side. Based on the Illinois Criminal Code, each side were allowed 12 peremptory challenges, which gave them the right to excuse a juror without giving a reason. This allows each side to shape a jury more to their liking. These peremptory challenges need to be considered closely, because there is a risk that they may excuse a juror, who could then be replaced with somebody else who has stronger beliefs or opinions that do not align with the defendant or do align with the defendant. There are numerous motivations behind excusing a juror. For example, the prosecution may want to excuse somebody who has a liberal mindset, or somebody who doesn't have strong ties to the community, while the defence may want to excuse somebody who identifies with law enforcement, or somebody with an authoritarian personality. To establish the characteristics of potential jurors, each side would ask appropriate questions. We spoke with lawyer Bob Byman about the dynamics of juries, and this is what he told us. The dynamics of juries have always perplexed jury lawyers because if you get somebody strong, they can really influence the sheep on a jury. And so that happens all the time. There's nothing particularly unusual about that. Uh, they have to have a unanimous verdict they don't all, all have to be unanimous in their degree of belief. When it was defense attorney Ralph Metchik's turn to ask questions, he asked one potential juror whether he owned a car, to which the potential juror replied, yes. Pressing further, he asked whether he had made the decision to purchase the car, or whether his wife had made the decision to purchase the car. There was an objection to the question by the prosecution, who said that the question was relevant. Metchik then asked whether the potential juror had ever been recognised with an award for superior performance. Judge Neville interrupted and stated that the question was not a good question. Metchik said that he would rephrase the question and then ask the potential juror if he had ever received any personal awards. Judge Neville ordered Metchik and the others into his chambers for what would be the first in a number of interruptions during the trial, mainly to Metchik's questions and cross-examinations. Away from the jury, Judge Neville told Metchik that his questions were stupid and that he was wasting time. 
According to Magic, however, the questions were essential in trying to determine whether or not somebody had an authoritarian personality. Put off by the judge's comments, Magic relented and did not ask any further preemptive questions. Ultimately, the jury would consist of six men and six women, all of whom were white. April 10th, 1990 marked the start of the murder trial. As you enter the courtroom and walk down the aisle, there are seven rows of seats on either side. On the left of the room sat supporters of the Dwallabies. The front rows on both sides were filled with reporters. The opinion on the guilt of the Dwallabies divided the entire state, and many curious onlookers flocked to the Cook County courtroom to witness one of the tensest murder trials in Chicago's history. The jury box took over the top right side of the room, facing the defendant's table. Next to the jury box, facing the judge's table and witness stand, was the prosecutor's table. Before the trial began, Davy was extensively questioned by Judge Neville to determine whether the young boy was competent to testify against his parents. He was ushered into the court with his aunt and uncle, Rose and John, as well as his assistant public guardian. Davy looked out of place on the witness stand. Dressed in a grey suit, he looked tiny as he sat perched on the edge of the chair. Only the top of his head could be seen from the spectators' area. When he spotted his parents sitting at the defendant's table, he looked over and waved. Judge Neville quickly got into the questions. He asked whether Davy understood the difference between truth and a lie. He replied, It means like if you didn't really do the thing and you just tell them, it wouldn't be right. It would be a lie because if you didn't do the thing and you just made something up, that would be a lie. He first of all asked Davy some simple questions such as his name, his age and who he lived with. He then wanted to establish whether Davy had a proper understanding of the time period that was relative to the crime. He asked Davy if he could remember his fourth birthday, to which Davy said he could not. In fact, Davy remembered very little about this time frame. He was only four years old, after all. Davy recollected that they lived in a tambrick house, and when he was asked to remember his bedroom, he recollected, There was a bed and four chairs. I think spiders crawling around. Lots of them. He also reminisced about frequently going to a nearby play park with his parents and Jacqueline. Ultimately, Judge Neville would determine that Davy could not be called to testify. He found that Davy was articulate and bright, and that he could tell the difference between right and wrong, but he couldn't quite remember specific details from the time Jacqueline vanished. The opening statements of a murder trial are arguably one of the most important aspects and can leave a lasting impression on the jury. While an opening statement is not technically part of the evidence presented at a trial, it can be highly influential in the decision of the jury. An experienced attorney will keep the opening statement relatively brief and use language that each member of the jury will understand, as well as keeping it compelling enough that they pay attention and make it leave a strong emotional impact. Sometimes, an attorney will forfeit their opening statement. The danger in presenting an opening statement is that an attorney could later potentially contradict something they said when later presenting evidence. This can be damning to their case and could elicit doubt in jurors' minds. On the prosecution team was Assistant State Attorney Pat O'Brien and George Falchuk. 
O'Brien was born and raised in Chicago. He received a BA from the University of Notre Dame before attending DePaul University College of Law. He became a licensed attorney in 1975 and practiced in both the public and private sector. Belchick was a graduate of the University of Notre Dame and Loyola University School of Law. He had worked on a number of family murder cases and wanted to win the case, as he said, for Jacqueline. During their opening statements, State Attorney O'Brien glanced towards Cynthia and David, who sat with their fingers interlocked. He stated, I believe what the evidence will show you is that there are some things in this courtroom that bind us tighter together than hand-holding. I believe the evidence will show you that the defendants, David and Cynthia DeWallaby, are bound together by a chilling secret. That secret being that they are responsible for the murder of Jacqueline DeWallaby. He took the jury through the morning of Jacqueline's disappearance. He became more animated as he stated, The defendants presented the police with a mystery. It was a mystery the defendants created themselves. He went on to claim that Cynthia and David had created the mystery by fabricating stories about the abduction and murder of Jacqueline. He briefly spoke about the discovery of Jacqueline's body and not saving any gruesome details, he explained that her face was indistinguishable, having been essentially devoured by maggots. He informed the jury that much of the case hinged on circumstantial evidence, but said that they could still prove guilt with that alone. He hinted that they had a state witness who could identify David as the man seen on the night of Jacqueline's disappearance at the scene where her body was found. Originally, they had said that the witness had picked David out from a group of photographs, but now, he seemingly shied away from these prior assertions and instead told the jury that he had viewed the man he believed was David from 75 yards away and recognised one prominent feature, the man's nose. On the defending team was David's attorney, Ralph Metchik, and Cynthia's attorney, Lawrence Hyman. Daniel Franks was also on the defence team, assisting Metchik and Hyman. Franks was a former prosecutor who had worked on the opposing side of Metchik during several trials. If the prosecution thought this was going to be an easy conviction, then they were going to be sorely disappointed. The witness testimony that they relied on so heavily was going to be under tense scrutiny by the defence team. So bizarre, so strange, so hellish that the mother and father who loved that child are charged with her murder, said attorney Mechik. He contended that Cynthia and David were the victims of a police investigation gone dreadfully wrong. Saying, The real crime, or other crime in this case, was that the prosecutors charged Cindy and David DeWallaby with the murder of their child. This was every parent's nightmare, the death of their daughter. Refuting the eyewitness testimony that Assistant State Attorney O'Brien had spoken about during his opening statements, Mechik said to the jury that from the vantage point this witness was at, there was no possible way he could have seen any part of a man's body, nor been able to distinguish any form of facial features. The opening statements from the prosecution were compelling and emotive. The defence, however, fell short of the mark. Mechik presented an opening statement tarnished with fumbling contradictions and blatant inaccuracies that would seriously damage the case. He had described David's demeanour as calm before saying that he was panicky, and at one point he even referred to Jacqueline as Cindy. He also seemingly got confused when taking the jury through the moment David had discovered the front door open, stating, They watched TV for an hour or so and David was getting anxious. Let me back up a minute, I'm sorry. As Judge Neville would later say, you couldn't pick up what the fuck he was doing. 
when attorney Hyman presented his opening argument. He suggested to the jury that a convicted burglar had broken in to the Dewallaby home that night, abducted Jacqueline, and murdered her. This person, he said, was the same person who broke into a Blue Island home the following year, kidnapped a six-year-old girl while her parents and brother slept, took her to the canal near where Jacqueline's body had been found, sexually assaulted her, and then let her go. Facing the jury, Hyman said, What the police said could not have happened, that anybody could crawl through a window and take a child out, was disproved by this heinous predator, Perry Hernandez. Some of the first witness testimony came from Jacqueline's young friends. The purpose was to humanise Jacqueline. Far too often in murder cases, the identity of the victim is lost among the headlines. Bringing such a young child to the witness stand was certainly poignant and brought home the true tragedy of the murder case. And Wallaby, David's mother, also took to the witness stand early on in the trial. Here, she contradicted an earlier statement that she had made. She previously told investigators that the rope found wrapped around Jacqueline's neck looked similar to the one that she had seen Davy playing with in the past. Upon the stand, however, she recanted this statement and said that she had been mistaken and that it more than likely wasn't the same rope. She described how when she was shown the rope by investigators, it was coiled inside a small plastic evidence bag. She testified that the rope she had seen Davy playing with was only around 10 to 12 feet long, when the rope that was found around Jacqueline's neck was unwound and presented during trial. It stretched to 25 or 26 feet. Is that the rope that David played with? questioned defence attorney Franks. No, that's a little longer, much longer than the one he played with, Anne responded. The rope that was used to strangle Jacqueline would be a focal point throughout the trial, with former neighbour of Cynthia and David, Jeffrey Kolekchek, testifying that he had seen Davy playing with the same type of rope that was found wrapped around Jacqueline's neck. Jeffrey had lived three doors down from the Dwallabies at the time of the murder, and claimed that following the murder he never saw Davy playing with the rope again. The defence maintained that if an intruder had broken into the home and kidnapped Jacqueline, he very well had the means to grab the rope, if it was indeed the same rope. Everett Mann, who prosecutors had said had seen David at the crime scene on the night of the murder, took the stand to testify what he had seen. The prosecution team had anticipated that this witness testimony was going to be the most damning evidence against David. O'Brien had disclosed to the jury that Everett had been approximately 75 yards away from the man that he believed to be David, and that he told investigators that the man he saw had a very distinctive and prominent nose. Upon the witness stand, Everett told the jury that David's nose structure resembled the man who he had seen at the crime scene on the night Jacqueline vanished. Blue Island Police Officer Joe Cosman was one of the first officers to speak with Everett. Here's what he had to say. Yeah, the guy told the truth. I mean, he was putting him, he was admitting that he was cheating, that, that it was getting back to his wife. Yeah. But he told what he saw. We didn't, we didn't make it anymore. We didn't say he made a positive ID. It was presented as he had a Roman-like nose. And I, I identified a picture as David DeWalby as someone who's similar. But his big thing was on the car. 
but the everyone else just blew that way out of proportion that we were trying to push this this fake uh, false identification he just told the truth you know he had, he had you know yeah he had he had nothing to gain either way he could have said i didn't see anything you know instead of admitting well you know i was coming home from a date well was your wife with you no it was a date and uh he had nothing to say we also spoke with lawyer Bob Byman about whether or not he believed that Everett ever really claimed to be an eyewitness. Everett never professed to be an eyewitness. All he, I mean, he was pretty credible about what he said and pretty consistent. All he said was, from way far away, I saw the dark outline of a nose structure. That's all I saw. And when he was asked whose nose looks most like it, and given a limited number of choices, he said his. When he testified, all he did was reconfirm that he had picked David Duwalaby's nose out of an array of five noses. The state never asked him, and I don't think Maycheck ever asked him, and probably should have on cross-examination. Uh, do you see a nose in this courtroom today that looks like the one you did? He never actually pointed a finger at David Duwalaby and said, that's the nose I saw. All he said was, his nose was the most like the one I saw. So, yes, eyewitness testimony is totally unreliable in many cases, but that's not what man was. He was never an eyewitness. He was a nose witness. Under direct examination by the prosecution, Everett admitted that he wasn't sure if the nose he saw that night belonged to a man or a woman. He additionally admitted that he couldn't be sure whether the nose belonged to a black or white individual. He conceded that all he saw that night was a silhouette that seemed like a man. He admitted that the lighting in the car park that night wasn't the best. Additionally, Everett said that the man he had seen that night was in a dark-colored late model, mid-sized car, later describing it as a late 70s model, Malibu Classic but the Dwalbys owned a 1980 pale blue Chevy Malibu that differed significantly in appearance. Back when Everett first came forward as a witness, police had shown him photographs of one car, one pickup truck and two vans. The jury were informed that all of the vehicles shown to Everett were vehicles driven by the Dwalbys. The car was Cynthia's Chevy Malibu, the van was David's Ford pickup truck, and the two vans were David's employer's vans. Of course, Everett picked out the Chevy Malibu as the car he had seen that night. He claimed that he recognised the car because his Air Force sergeant in the 1970s, Ralph Steyer, had owned a similar car. The defence had tracked the sergeant down and he had sent them a photograph of his car at the time. It was a bright red two-door 1976 Malibu with a sloped back. In silhouette, it bore absolutely no similarities to the Dewallaby's car. Yet the defence had an audio recording of Everett, claiming that the cars were exactly the same. While Everett had said that the car in the parking lot that night was dark in colour, the photograph of the car he had picked out was, of course, light in colour since it was Cynthia's pale blue Chevy Malibu. When questioned about the discrepancy, Everett once again reiterated that the lighting in the car park wasn't the best. 
so he speculated that a light-coloured car could pass as a dark-coloured car under the circumstances. Cross-examination by Metric would follow. He had requested a short break, but Judge Neville denied it and ordered him to begin his cross-examination. First of all, he questioned Everett about his background in the military. He fumbled across his words several times, leading to confusion among those in attendance. At one point, Metric conferred at the defence table and received a piece of paper, filled with questions that Franks had scribbled down in a bid to assist Metric. Before the trial, it had been uncovered by the investigator for the defence, John Waters, that Everett had undergone psychological testing, but the findings had not been allowed to be entered as evidence, as it was deemed irrelevant. Despite this, Metric tried several times to bring up the psychological testing, and each time the prosecution audibly rejected. Undeterred, Metric then turned his attention to Everett's desire to join the police force. Everett's biggest ambition in life was to become a Chicago police officer, but he was rejected three times, two of which were for psychological reasons. Under cross-examination, Everett admitted that he had lied about his address on voting records as well as a number of applications he had made to police. The purpose of this was to highlight that Everett was not a reliable witness. I don't think he ever, ever claimed to be an eyewitness. I think his story didn't really change over time. He simply said, I saw a car that I can't really identify except by basic shape. I saw a person in the car. He couldn't tell if the person was black, white, male, or female. So he never was an eyewitness that I saw David Duwallaby. He said, I saw a prominent nose. And then they put together a very crude photo array of five or six people and said, uh, which of these five people have the nose most like the one you saw? The picture they used of David was 20% bigger, the headshot that they used of David was 20% bigger than the headshots of the other four guys. And so by definition, it was the biggest nose on the photo array. And when Mann was shown it, he said, yeah, this guy here, who was David Duwallaby, has the nose most like the nose I had seen. And then as an aside, he said to Pat O'Brien, the prosecutor, he said, but your nose looks even more like it. So Mann was never a credible eyewitness. It was just leaked to the press that they had an eyewitness when they actually had to put him under oath and have him testify. Uh, they couldn't now spin it as if they were doing to the press. They had to let him say what he was going to say. And all he could say was, I saw a nose. Actually, he saw the outline or the shape of a nose. While Everett's eyewitness testimony had been severely discredited, Metric had performed his cross-examination inadequately, and David made sure to let him know that he was upset. This should have been the moment that the prosecution's case was blown to shreds, but it was a lackluster performance. Metric apologised to David and blamed his nerves, but when you're fighting for someone else's life, there is no time to be nervous. On the third day of the trial, O'Brien and Velchik led the jurors and Judge Neville, by bus to the apartment complex where Jacqueline's body had been discovered. They pointed out the location where her body was disposed of, around three feet behind the dumpster and into the weeds. 
They were additionally shown at the vantage point where Everett had seen the man with a prominent nose in his car. While Everett had witnessed the car and the man at around 2.15am, the jury embarked on the scene at noon. The jury additionally took a tour of the Dwallaby's home. By this point it was sold and the new owners were living in it. The jury all gathered around the 20-inch long, 14-inch high basement window on the east side of the house to get a better idea of the size of the window. They were then taken inside the home where they were shown the basement, each bedroom, the kitchen, the living room and the bathroom. Cynthia and David did not attend the viewing. As attorney Hyman said, they felt they just went through so much, it would be too much to go through. Back in court the following day, Holly Deck testified as a defence witness. Holly described herself as a nosy neighbour, and this often vexatious trait would prove to be in favour of the defence. Holly lived at 3644 West 148th Place in Midlothian, next door to the Dwallabies. While she knew Cynthia and David, they weren't especially close. As Holly said, she had no children and they didn't necessarily have much in common. They were still jovial to one another, and Cynthia would sometimes buy Avon products from Holly. She first of all told the jury that on the afternoon before Jacqueline's disappearance, she had seen laundry on the washing line in the Dwallaby's backyard, including Jacqueline's sheets. She described how later that night she and her husband went to the local video store to rent some movies. She recollected how it was a Friday night because the video store offers a deal on Friday nights wherein you can rent three movies for $6. It was around 10.30 when she got back home. Holly recalled that there were cars parked up and down both sides of the street, which was extremely uncommon in the quiet residential area. While Holly didn't know it at the time, one of her neighbours had been having a Tupperware party and the abundance of cars had belonged to guests of said party. After commenting on the flurry of activity in the neighbourhood, Holly and her husband sat down to watch the movie. She said that at some point between 11pm and 12am, her four dogs began to bark and growl at their side door, which was the door facing Dwallaby's residence. Their hackles were up, which indicated that they'd become alerted to something or somebody. She described how the four dogs began pacing back and forth and recounted that the dogs had only ever behaved this way when there was a stranger present. She also confirmed that the dogs had met both Cynthia and David on numerous occasions and had liked them. In fact, their chihuahua, which Holly described as the meanest of the dogs, had been especially fond of Jacqueline. Holly's husband went out onto the porch to try and ascertain what the dogs were barking at. He turned the porch light on, but had been unable to see anything suspicious. According to Holly, the barking had gone on and off for approximately an hour before they finally settled. The couple watched movies before going to bed at around 1.30am. 40 minutes later, Holly woke up. She went to the bathroom and then went to get a glass of water from the kitchen. While here, she looked out the window to see whether the cars in the neighbourhood had left. She noticed that they had, except for one, the Dwallaby Chevy. The car stood out to her because it had been parked awkwardly at an angle, overhanging their driveway. Holly's eyewitness account contradicted Everett Mann's eyewitness account because it was around this time that Everett said that he had seen the Dwallaby Chevy at the crime scene in Blue Island. In further testimony, Holly described how the following morning after she discovered that Jacqueline was missing, she had been looking out her window when she saw Cynthia beside the shattered basement window. She told the court, I saw her standing at the broken window. I was talking on the phone to my girlfriend and I said, I'm nosy. I was looking out the window and there was Cindy 
and she was pointing at the window, jumping up and down. I mean, she was very upset about it. Another witness to contradict Everett's claim of seeing the Dwallaby's car at the crime scene was another neighbour of Cynthia and David, Brian Anderson. Brian took to the witness stand to describe how he had seen the Dwallaby's car parked in the same position on the night that Jacqueline disappeared and the following day. Brian told the jury that the neighbour had been crowded with cars from his wife's Tupperware party when Cynthia pulled up at some time after 7pm. He had watched out the window as Cynthia squeezed her car into one of the very few small spaces that were left outside. She parked her car in an awkward position, overhanging her driveway by around one foot, between two other cars. Brian told the jury that he watched Cynthia parking because he was worried that she may hit one of the other cars. At around 8am the following morning, Brian went outside to wash his car. He told the jury that he backed the car out of the garage and about halfway down his driveway. From here he said he noticed that Cynthia's Chevy was still overhanging her driveway in the same awkward position as the night before. This was the second witness to indicate that the car had not been driven during the crucial time period from when Jacqueline was last seen alive to when she was discovered to be missing. Brian's wife, Eileen Anderson, was also called as a defence witness. She told the jury that her mother-in-law arrived at the party a little after 7pm. Shortly after she arrived, another guest knocked on the front door. Eileen told the jury that when she let the guest in, she noticed Cynthia pulling open the Chevy. She says she stopped for a moment to watch Cynthia park because her mother-in-law had taken Cynthia's usual spot in front of the Dwallaby home. According to Eileen, there was very little room for Cynthia to park. She said, So I saw her backing in and I kept an eye on her just to watch that she didn't tap my mother-in-law's car at all. Much like her husband, Eileen said that the nose of Cynthia's car was overhanging her driveway due to lack of space. A portion of the trial focused on David. When David was told that Jacqueline was found dead after he'd been interrogated for hours, he asked, was it in a field? The prosecutors alleged this meant that David knew where Jacqueline was the entire time. However, when David was told about Jacqueline's body being discovered, he is suspected that the police were trying to get him to confess. According to FBI agent Alfred Hardman, David allegedly said, You think you've gotten me broken down. You think I'm going to confess, but I'm not. Furthermore, David had been referencing the prediction made by the psychic, Linda Petrine. Under cross-examination, Agent Hardman admitted that he did not take any notes during the four-hour interview with David, wherein he was informed that Jacqueline's body had been found. Linda had also been called to testify at the trial. The, the, the idea is that um, with David, it was like my testimony was to help them realize that everything that he said, that they said only the murderer would know, I had given them, given him. When they, they called to tell him that um, they had found her body, he started telling them about my reading and said what well, she found in this field. You know, I had drawn the trees and full foliage and everything, and that it would be like there for summer weather, the grass would be high. I saw the garbage cans. I saw the building that was off to the to the right. And that's, of course, where she wasn't murdered, but where her body was placed. And um, it, it was upon that, I remember Cynthia and John Waters talking to me when they came to the house here, that um, unfortunately they used that to say that only the killer could have known these details. And that, to me, was so wrong because I had offered that, that to the officer. I, 
please let your person know that I made it. I know you're not able to talk to me and I'm leaving, but I did make extra copies of the tape. I have a drawing of the murder scene and stuff, so if they want that, because he, he was told he couldn't take it. I mean, he was told not to, to even talk to me or address me by the chief. And um, it was just, it was sad because um, in court, that's one of the things that came out was that uh, I think it was right by, the, by this Pat, Pat, Pat O'Brien was yelling at me at that point. Cause it was toward the, at the very end. And he said, if, if I had this gift, why were there unsolved cases in the Chicagoland area and around it if I had this, these visions and could be this accurate? And I saw, I, how many cases do you think a person can handle? I still have to work. I have a family, you know, I mean, but I never lost my composure. And I think that's, he did, but his was absolutely beat red. He's flung himself at the desk that was like, you know, where between me and the stand where he was at and he's hitting the desk and he's going off and, and, and going on about this and why then, then his next comeback as he's so flustered was that why wouldn't I have given this to the police department? And, and if I had this, and I said, but I did offer it more than once. It was it was brought up to them when I was coming, and I brought it up to an officer, and an officer called in and was told, no, they weren't interested in it. So I said, okay, I have it. If they want it, it's, let me know. I can, I'll, I'll be glad to send it. But I was never contacted by them. He wanted to rattle me because he was yelling at the judge the day before, saying, "It's it, she can't take a stand in this court." And he goes, and the judge says, "Well, why do you say that?" And he said, "Because she's not a proven science." And the judge says, "Well, that's why I'm here interviewing her to find out what she's done. This is not she's not on trial or anything. This is just getting her background." me firing questions and putting her in situations and he he did the judge asked me a zillion things about how did i get started how did i get pulled into doing murder case work it was i said not willingly i i loved being able to help people so it was just phenomenal that i had all these gifts so um uh and that's why i think all the press Put such a focus on me because anything happening in the case that was unique to make it bigger and the fact that here is a clairvoyant psychic taking stand not as a proven science and we're not recognized to usually take a stand at that time in a murder case because we aren't a proven science all of a sudden you got a judge ruling in my favor from the meeting the day before that he felt i was qualified and felt um that I had no reason to not discuss whatever they were going to bring up to me on um, I was on the stand. And we didn't know what they were going to do, the prosecutors. I was just told to answer their questions. And I meditated before I went in, hoping that when I meditated that I could stay clear and not get nervous. Because <laughs> it, it's crazy when you sit in, in the courtroom and you see all these reporters in there filling bench after bench and you're recognizing people when you watch the news 
it, it's nerve-wracking and then you're 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 dealing with a child's case and somebody's being going to jail so it was um, a major uh, responsibility she took the courtroom to the evening she met with Cynthia and David on the 12th of September. She described how she was welcomed into the home and taken to the basement and to Jacqueline's room. Linda told the court that she had asked Cynthia and David to invite the police down to the reading. However, the police had turned in the offer. She stated they weren't interested in sending anybody. Inside Jacqueline's bedroom, Linda had told David that Jacqueline would be found strangled in a field with high weeds. She said that before leaving their home that evening, she asked Cynthia for something of Jacqueline's, preferably something that she had written. Cynthia handed Linda a picture of Mickey Mouse that Jacqueline had coloured in on the night she vanished. Following Jacqueline's funeral, Linda spoke with Cynthia once again, and she inquired as to whether she could be given an item of clothing of Jacqueline's, as well as something that Jacqueline had written, and informed her that these items could potentially lead to a better reading. Cynthia was arrested before Linda received any of these items. Cynthia was uh, for it, gave me her underpants and, and the drawing. And um, it was, I think she had already been, they thought it was that because they found that in her purse. Who, what mother would carry her daughter's underpants and something she drew unless she was guilty. Sadly, in trying to help them, it kind of hurt them, which I felt really bad about. Um, and that was why I had to go to court was to under, you know, um, swearing in and everything that I had this. And what made it bad was that the, the stuff I had given to David that he gave to the lawyer got lost. In further testimony, State Police Captain Daniel McDevitt admitted that a high percentage of the leads that they had investigated into the case targeted Cynthia and David. When he was cross-examined, the defence tried to show the jury that as soon as Jacqueline's body was discovered, police gave up on trying to find other suspects or investigate other leads because they suspected that David and Cynthia were involved. The prosecution implied that Jacqueline had been killed in her bed and that was why she had no bed sheets. Cynthia had washed Jacqueline's sheets and intended to make the bed but she was called into work and never got the chance before Jacqueline went to sleep that night. The sheet was on the line, a neighbour confirmed that she saw it there that day. Hyman said that an intruder broke into the home of Jacqueline through a basement window. Hyman said that an intruder broke into the home through a basement window and abducted Jacqueline while her parents slept. They compared it to a similar incident that occurred almost exactly a year later when Perry Hernandez broke into a Blue Island home and took a little girl from her bed while her parents slept. The prosecution denied this. They did not believe that anyone came through the window. On a moonless Wednesday night, three weeks into the trial, the jury clambered into a bus where they were driven out to the same parking lot that Everett claimed he saw David. Police officers circled around the jury to protect them from the plethora of spectators reporters and photographers that had embarked on the scene. The jury stood at the same vantage point, under similar conditions from which Everett claimed to have seen the car. It was 2am and the jury stood 75 yards away from where Everett allegedly made out David's nose structure and car. Well, 
What could the jury see when glancing 75 yards away? Next to nothing, they reported. As a matter of fact, they couldn't even see the dumpster, which stood beside where Everett claims the car was positioned. As one observer said, you couldn't even see Jimmy Durante's nose from that distance. Before the trial, the defence had conducted their own experiment at the apartments. At 10pm on the 29th of September, 1989, David Wallaby sat in the driver's seat of the Chevy Malibu at the same spot where Everett claimed he saw the car. They hired a photographer, Donna Yarborough, who stood at the spot where Everett had said he parked that night. Every single exterior light in that section of the apartment complex was turned on, as well as photographic floodlights that were aimed at the position of David and the car. She turned the videotape on with a lens 20 times the resolution power of a human eye, and recorded David as he slowly backed out of the parking space. When they reviewed the footage, it captured the shape of the car as well as the colour. However, they were unable to discern a no structure or even the gender of the driver. When they repeated the experiment using the conditions Everett claimed to see David under, nothing could be seen at all. By all accounts, Everett's eyewitness testimony had been severely damaged, but not in court because that tape had not been admitted into evidence and the tape of Bob Tolbert proving someone could enter the basement, was lost before the trial had even begun. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Shattered Window. The Shattered Window is a completely independent podcast paid for out of our own pockets. If you'd like to support the show in return for loads of bonus content, behind the scenes, merch and more, then please check out The Shattered Window on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Also make sure you visit us at theshatteredwindow.com for more information about this episode and follow us on social media to keep up to date with the case and any developments. If you enjoy The Shattered Window, it would mean the world if you'd left us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to support a show that you enjoy and can help us reach new listeners. Once again, thank you for listening and until next time, take care of yourselves, stay safe and have an amazing week.